You know, just this idea that, that sex is off limits. Yeah, maybe we've got to have it to have children, but don't enjoy it and don't have a lot of it. I want to begin by saying that if you are somebody that that thinks that uh, the Christian faith has a bedroom ethic that somehow resembles the cleavers, I want to really challenge you to read what the Bible says about sex. Because when you read the Bible, the overall vision, the overall message about sex is is overwhelmingly positive. The, The biblical view of sex is not repressive at all. In fact, I would say it's almost embarrassingly erotic. And so way back, I mean, just think about it. Way back in the book of Genesis, who invented sex? God invented sexuality, and then he put Adam and Eve in the garden without clothes on. Uh, Chapter two of the Bible, you've got naked Adam standing in front of naked Eve singing a rapturous love poem in the presence of God. And then in the middle of the Bible, there's uh, the Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom, and it's got a father giving his son advice. And, And one piece of advice the father gives is let your wife's breast wife's breast satisfy you at all times and then there's uh the song of solomon which is a erotic love poem in the old testament and this is a, a book that if it was made into a movie would be rated r at best and maybe rated maybe worse uh, i mean it's just extremely explicit uh, and i didn't even want to quote it today because it's kind of embarrassing But this is just erotic, erotic uh, love poetry. I remember being a young person in junior high school and discovering the Song of Solomon in Sunday school and being in the back of the class and showing my friend, hey, did you know this was in the Bible? I mean, you should read it sometime. And then you've got Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, and yes, he was a celibate church planter, but in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uh, advises married couples to have sex as much as you can. He says sex is a good thing, and everybody who is able-bodied should have sex as, uh, liberally in marriage. And so the Bible's view of sex is overwhelmingly positive. Now, admittedly, the biblical uh, vision of sex is also wildly countercultural, because on the one hand, although it is uh, almost liberal when it comes to celebrating erotic love, on the other hand, it, it rest- has a very almost conservative uh, restriction on sex. In the Bible's view, yes, sex is a great thing, but it is something that should be limited to a particular time and place, uh, namely uh, within the covenant of marriage. And so what you have in the Bible is not only celebrations of erotic love, but also many warnings about the misuse of sexuality. And so this morning, uh, we're going to go to one of these warnings. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, we read it together and we heard the, the, the warning loud and clear. Paul says right in the middle of the passage, flee sexual immorality. And we've got to understand a little bit of the context. So uh, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a, a church in the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth was a, a place that was uh, described as having high culture, but also fast living. One commentator said that Corinth was like L.A., New York City, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. So uh, sex in Corinth was liberal, it was rampant, it was explicit, and man, you know, modern, the modern West has nothing on Corinth. Uh, there was a, 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 a hill outside of the city called the Acropolis, and on top of that hill was a temple dedicated, dedicated to the goddess Di- uh, 
Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, and there was some 1,000 temple prostitutes running around the city of Corinth. Uh, Women from the city of Corinth were uh, viewed as promiscuous. In fact, uh, the name for a promiscuous woman in the ancient world was a Corinthian girl. And so uh, this is the culture where these people were were living. This church was located, and and the church was converted out of this culture. They were dwelling in the midst of this culture. And uh, some of the people in the church, although they were following Jesus and they had adopted the beliefs of Christianity, in their sexual lives, they were kind of just doing what everybody else was doing. And so from the passage, we know that some of them were visiting the temple prostitutes. They had a very loose understanding of sexuality. And Paul gives them a warning. He says, I want you to flee sexual immorality. Now, the word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And the word uh, porneia is uh, used for any sex outside of the boundaries of one man, one woman, and one covenant for one lifetime. So for, for Paul, any sex outside of the marriage bond, any sex, whether it's extramarital or premarital or whatever, any sex outside of marriage was porneia. And Paul says, I want you to run from that. Say no to that. I don't care what your culture is doing. He says, you need to be different. And I want you to see here that Paul doesn't just say no. He is going to give them an argument as to why they should restrict sex to the marriage bed. Uh, which is a good example for all of us parents. You know, don't just say no to your kids. No, 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 don't do it, don't do it. Just say no. It's a good idea to give them an argument. Why should I say no? Why should I restrict sex to the marriage bed? Why, why can't I do what the rest of the culture is doing here? Paul gives them an argument. And so what I want to do is parse out Paul's argument here. I want to try to follow it. And what Paul's going to say here is that when you commit sexual immorality or porneia, you are misunderstanding four things. And so he says, when you commit sexual immorality, number one, you are misunderstanding your freedom. So notice what Paul begins in verse 12, and he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sexual immorality is a misuse of your freedom. Now, you you might notice here that the, the phrase, all things are lawful for me, are in quotation marks, and this means that this was a slogan that the Corinthian church was using to justify their sexual immorality. They were saying, we're free. We are free to do whatever we want. Paul, you told us that that Christianity liberates us. You told us that Jesus Christ has saved us and liberated us and made us free from the law. And so our sexual uh, expression here is, is an expression of our freedom that we have in Jesus. Now, this sounds a lot like the, in the 1960s, you know, you remember there was a sexual revolution and the, and the slogan was free love. You know, you could have sex with uh, whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, no limits. Throw off all the shackles of that, of that restrictive culture on sex. And the Corinthians were kind of saying the same thing. Our sexual immorality is an expression of our freedom. And what does Paul say to that? What Paul's going to say here is he says, yes, it is true that you are free in Jesus Christ, that you are freed from the law. God has freed you from achieving salvation through rules. But although you are free from the law, he will say, you are not free from all limits. Freed from the law, but not free from limits. Paul would say you have a misunderstanding of your freedom. 
The definition of freedom, according to a Christian, is not the, the freedom from all boundaries, throwing off all the limits. Freedom, according to the Christian, is finding the right limits, of submitting yourself to the limits that lead to freedom. You see, all of us were made to live within limits. Uh, all of us find our freedom within limits. There's a givenness to things, as Marilyn Robin, Robinson has once said. There's a way things are, and freedom is found in putting yourself under the limits of your creation. And when you throw off the shackle of all limits, that is not freedom, especially when it comes to sexuality. Just doing whatever you want with your sex life is not an expression of freedom, but a denial of it. And one way that I, I like to describe this, and I've said this illustration before, is when I was younger, I, I used to love, my, my mom would make Pillsbury uh, cookie dough, or she, Pillsbury cookies, and there was this cookie dough in the cylindrical tube, and she used to give me little pieces of that stuff raw. Oh, it was so good, I loved it. But she'd always, she'd always just give me a limited amount. And then when I got older, and I got some freedom, I went away to college, and one day I was going through the grocery store, and I saw the tube of, of Pillsbury uh, dough. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get that and eat as much as I want. And so I, I bought it, went home, plopped myself in front of the TV, proceeded to eat three quarters of a tube of raw cookie dough. Listen, your body was not meant to ingest three quarters of a tube of raw cookie dough. And when you do that, that is not an expression of your freedom. That is a bellyache, that is vomiting. <laughs> That is not an expression of your freedom. And sexual, uh, sexuality is much the same way. Sex was meant to be within limits, the limits of your creation. And when you cross those limits, that is not an expression of your freedom. In many ways, that leads to bondage and all sorts of bad things. Freedom within limits. And it's not just sexuality that this is true for. All sin is kind of this way. The Bible describes sin as inordinate desire. There are, there, there's an appropriate place for all desire. For anger, there's an appropriate place for that. For fear, there's an appropriate place for that. For comfort, there's an appropriate place for that. But inordinate desire is fear turned into anxiety. It is comfort turned into laziness. It is sex outside of the boundaries. You see, freedom is found within the limits of your creation. And just like a fish, if you liberate the fish and you take it out of the bounds of the water, that fish is not free. In fact, outside of the limits of the water, it will die. And you save the fish by putting it back into the limits of the water. And that is a description of Christian salvation. God saves you by putting you back into the limits of your creation. And so Paul says, when you do whatever you want with your sex life, this is not an expression of freedom but a denial of it. Let's move on and look at the next part of his argument. Not only is sexual morality a, a misuse of freedom, but it's also a misuse of your body. So notice in verse 13, he goes on and he says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Now notice again, this is a little phrase that's in quotation marks. And that means that this was also a slogan that the Corinthians were using to justify their sexual morality. They said, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach is meant for food. But Paul goes on and says, and God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So they were saying, listen, our, listen we're, it's just a bodily appetite is all sex is. You know, it's, it's just, you know, biology 
you know, it's natural. It's just part of your animalistic desires. When you feel like you need to do it, just do it. What's the big deal? You know, when it's just a physical drive. If you're hungry, you eat. You're thirsty, you drink. When you feel sexy, you have sex, right? This is all it is. What Paul shows us here is that this understanding of sexuality was coming out of a, of, of a Greek view of the body, a very negative view of the body. So uh, the Stoics believed that the body was a lower faculty. Uh, they believed that the, the, bo- the physical body was base and bad, dirty and ugly sort of a thing. And so they, they believed that the true you is spirit and your body is kind of a husk around your spirit. Uh, it's sort of an appendage to the real you. And one day, you know, Plato said, you're, you're going to be liberated from that body at death, and you're going to go off into disembodied bliss. And what the Corinthians were saying, well, they're saying, yeah, it's just the body. Who cares what we do in the body? What's the big deal? It's just my body. Well, Paul says, here's the big deal. Your body is incredibly important to God. He says, first of all, he says, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead bodily. So when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he didn't just rise a disembodied spirit. He was raised from the dead bodily. Remember, Thomas touched his his hands and his side. Jesus Christ was raised to physical body. And what that means is that in the end, for all of us, we will be raised a physical body. The, The Christian future is not disembodied bliss, but new bodies living on a new physical earth. And notice what Paul says here. He goes on and he says that God has united himself to your body. Right, so he's saying, he says here that the body is not a lower faculty. God has united himself to the body. Paul will not let your body become an appendage to the real you. Paul says that God has not only united himself to your spirit, but to to your body as well. And then later on, Paul will say that your body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, Christianity may be the most body-positive religion of all the world religion. According to Christianity, your, your body is good. Your body is sacred. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Christian, even the word here to describe the body is the Greek word soma. Can we all say that together? Soma. And this is not just a word for your physical body. This is the whole human person. Body, soul, and spirit. Creativity, emotions, your, your, your body parts. For Paul, the body is an integrated whole. And so anything you do with your body, you do. You cannot separate your body from yourself. And so what Paul says, be careful what you do in the body. He says, be careful what you do with that sacred body of yours. And the Corinthians were saying, hey, it's just my body. I've got my spiritual life here, and I can compartmentalize that, and I could do with my body and my sexual life a certain thing over here, and of course I've got my work life over here. And Paul says, no way, you're an integrated whole. You can't separate your life like that. And anything you do with your body, you are taking Jesus Christ with you. Uh, Martin Luther famously said that when a man walks into a brothel, he's taking Jesus with him. Because we are integrated wholes. What we do in our body cannot be separated from our spiritual lives. You know, you cannot compartmentalize your life or divide your life into sacred and secular. What you do with your body matters. What you do sexually matters. 
And I think we know this to be true. And so in the film, um, Indecent Proposal, uh, some of you may have seen that. Uh, it was made, a, a movie made several years back, and it tells the story of a young couple, and they were in debt. They needed money, and they were struggling, and they were, they were approached by a wealthy businessman who offered them a proposal. He, he said, I will give you a million dollars, and all you need to do, he said to the man, is let me sleep with your wife. The couple needed money, and they thought, well, what, what should we do? And the, in the movie, they're debating whether to do this or not, and they, they ultimately decide to take up the businessman on his offer. And there's one very uh, powerful point in, the, in the, sto- the story, a crucial moment towards the end of the film, where the woman, who's played by Demi Moore, she's saying to herself only half convincingly, after all, it's only my body, it's not my soul. You see, the the Bible knows this about us. We cannot sever ourselves off like that. You know, you're an integrated whole. What you do in in the body matters. So Paul says, no, this is, you can't view your body like this. Your body is sacred, and, and when you commit sexual immorality, you're taking Jesus Christ with you. Third point in his argument is they have a misunderstanding of sex itself. And so notice he goes on in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality a person commits against his own body. Thirdly, what Paul says is when you're committing sexual immorality, you're misunderstanding what sex is. Because what is sex? Is sex just biology? Is it just mingling of bodily fluids? What Paul says here is he says, when you have sex with a person, he says, you are becoming one flesh with them. And when he says one flesh, he's not just talking about one body. He's talking here about a deep relational and spiritual union. The two shall be one flesh. When he says that, he's quoting the book of Genesis. And you remember in the book of Genesis, uh, God creates the world out of a soupy chaos, And then he creates man and woman, and the climax of creation is when the man and the woman become one flesh. And when the Bible uses uh, the word, the phrase one flesh, it's talking about the purpose and power of sexuality. What is sex? It is not only the mingling of body, but the mingling of souls. Sex, according to the Bible, is a deep personal union that you have with another human being. In fact, in Scripture, when it says someone had sex with somebody else, it says that they knew the other person. So in sex, you become vulnerable. In sex, you open yourself up. In sex, you are naked and unashamed. And when you have sex with somebody, Paul says you are united to them in a very real, deep way. Someone once said that in the Scripture, sex is soul-body superglue. Sex is bonding apparatus. Sex is a very unique way of telling a person that I belong exclusively and completely to you. In fact, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. 
And then he says, you must not use sex to say anything less. So what is sex? It is a unique way, probably the most powerful way to say to a person, I'm yours. And what Paul is saying here is that you should never become physically naked with a person, that you're also not willing to become economically naked with or socially naked with or covenantally naked with. Right? You never want to say with your body that what you're not willing to say with the rest of your life. Sex is bonding apparatus. And this is why for Paul it's such a monstrosity that they're having sex with prostitutes because they're disconnecting sex from a relationship. And in the Bible, the definition of lust is a desire for sex without an accompanying desire for the other person. And when you disconnect sex from, sex from relationships, you do all sorts of damage because sex was meant to be bonding apparatus. And we know this. This is why whenever you have sex with a person, you feel very close to them. You feel united with them. And this is why, frankly, there's so much bad poetry. <laughs> you know, you, you, whether you're an artist or an engineer, you have to break out and love poetry when you have sex with somebody. So many bad love songs, and, and most of them are written by the band Chicago. You know, our love was meant to be the kind of love that lasts forever. And I want you here with me from tonight until the end of time. That's right, Dennis. I'm doing it. <laughs> you should know everywhere I go, always on my mind, in my heart, in my soul, baby. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I told first service I wouldn't do this second service. I had to because this, the purpose of sex, it's a very intimate thing. It unites two people together in a deep, it's not just the mingling of bodies, it's the mingling of souls. And this is why for Paul, sex outside of the covenant of marriage is such a monstrosity. And this is why sex is so crucial inside the covenant. Now you may not take my word for it, but I want, I want you to maybe listen to a woman named Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf is a, uh, I don't think she's a Christian. She uh, teaches, um, she's a feminist who teaches at Northwestern University. And she, there was a, an article she wrote in, in the New Yorker where she's writing about how pornography des destroys intimacy. And she's talking about how, how sex creates incredibly intimate bonds. And this is what she said. I'm not advocating a return to the days of hiding sexuality, but I am noting that the power and charge of sex are maintained when there is some sacredness to it, when it is not on tap all the time. And then she goes on and she tells a story. I will never forget a visit I, had, I made to Ilana, an old friend who had become an Orthodox Jew in Jerusalem. When I saw her again, she had abandoned her jeans and t-shirts for long skirts and a headscarf. I can't even see your hair, I asked, trying to find my old friend in there. No, she demurred quietly. And then she said, with calm sexual confidence, only my husband gets to see my hair. When she showed me her little house on a settlement on a hill, I saw the bedroom draped in Middle Eastern embroideries that she shares only with her husband. The sexual intensity in the air was overwhelming. It was private. It was a feeling of erotic intensity deeper than any I have ever picked up between secular couples in the liberated West. 
I thought our husbands see naked women all day on billboards in Times Square, if not on the net. Her husband never even sees another woman's hair. And I thought she must feel so hot. And she goes on, compare that steaminess to a conversation I had at Northwestern after I had talked about the effects of porn on relationships. Why have sex right away, a boy with tussled hair and Bambi eyes was explaining. Things are always a little tense and uncomfortable when you're just seeing someone, he said. I prefer to have sex right away just to get it over with. You know, it's going to happen anyway, and it gets rid of the tension. Isn't the tension kind of fun, I asked? Doesn't that also get rid of the mystery? Mystery? He looked at me blankly, and then without hesitating, he replied, I don't know what you're talking about. Sex has no mystery. You see, the scripture knows this about us, that the most powerful and poignant way to give the mystery of yourself to the mystery of somebody else is through the sexual union. And Paul says, when this is done exclusively, when it, when it is done in the covenant of marriage, it is incredible. But he also says, when you take this out of the bounds, when you take it outside of relationship and covenant, it does all sorts of damage, and you're putting yourself in the way of brokenness, and you're in for a world of pain. So Paul says, flee this. Pornea, he says, I want you to run away from it. Every other sin is, is outside of the body, but, w- but when you commit sexual immorality, it's against your soma. It splits apart that, that integral unity of who you are. Be careful what you do with that sacred body of yours because it matters. The fourth part of his argument is that they've misunderstood the gospel. Because in this passage, what I, I love the way he presents the gospel because he says the gospel is when Jesus Christ becomes Lord of your body. You know, the gospel is not just forgiveness of sins. Yes, it is that, and I, we thank God for the forgiveness of sins, but the gospel is also about glorifying God in your body. You know, the old bumper sticker that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, Hey, I love that I'm forgiving. Forgive, I love that I've been forgiven, but you are much more than just forgiven. You are liberated from the slavery of sin. Jesus Christ gave his body, he gave his soma to get your soma. And Paul says, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own anymore. Your body belongs to Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body. People say, oh, this is my body. I will do with it whatever I want. And Paul says, respectfully, I disagree with you. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ gave himself to purchase you, body, soul, and spirit. And now with that body of yours, you glorify him as your Lord and your Savior. And so here's Paul's argument for sex, for, uh, against porneia and for uh, the limits of sexuality within the marriage covenant. And I want to end with a few little, uh, just a few little points, a few little junk drawer points that I couldn't fit into the rest of this thing. Uh, how do we apply this, this thing? How do we apply this? And I want to talk a few minutes about that. I want you to know that, that what Paul is saying here 
is so important. And I want you to know that it's okay to be weird. <laughs> you know, this, what he's presenting here is a very countercultural ethic in our culture. I mean, if you live like this, you're going to be going against the, the wide stream in American culture. And I want you to know it's okay to be weird. It's okay to be different. And I love what Tim Keller says. He says, you know, in the first century, people were stingy with their bodies. The Christians were stingy with their bodies and promiscuous with their money. Whereas all the rest of the culture, they were promiscuous with their body and stingy with their money. And Tim, Tim Keller says the early church was different when it came to sexuality. And John Stott said that, that, the Christian, that Christians make the most impact on the, on the world when we are most distinct from it. And so it is okay to be weird. I think that we can present a different voice in our culture. And I love the voice because on the one hand, it celebrates sexuality and says this is a beautiful, intimate act. On the other hand, Paul was a celibate church planter. So he says it's okay to be single. You know, sex is beautiful and wonderful, but you can live all your life without it and live a fully human, vibrant existence. Jesus was single. Paul was single. And you can be single and live a fully human life. You see, the Christian sex ethic is weird but it's beautiful, and it is okay to be weird. It's okay to go against the culture. I want you to also know that it's okay to be kind. You know, I think that a lot of times this, this ethic that's been presented here can be used as a, has, has been used as a sledgehammer to beat people down in the culture. And I want you to know it's okay to disagree with people in the culture about sexuality. You know, I think we're losing the culture wars and I th- this is not something that we go out and fight with. This is something that we live. And it's okay to disagree. And it's okay to be kind to people that are different. And this is all about living it out. This is for us. This is a, a life that God has given his people to live uh, in the world. And finally, I want you to know that it's okay not to be okay. You know, the final word here is Grace. Because Paul begins the section by saying, you know, I don't want you to commit sexual immorality, but you know, I know that you were once sexually immoral. But through the gospel, you're washed. Through the gospel, you're clean. And so I want you to know that it is okay to experience brokenness and to be in process when it comes to sexuality. And I hope that our church can be a place where we can meet you where you are and you can come with all sorts of questions and all sorts of brokenness and still be in process and find a home here. You know, what I love about Jesus is that the sexually deviant, the prostitutes in the culture, they loved being around him. I mean, he was a man who just invited people in and they, they felt comfortable around Jesus. What's so fascinating is the people in Jesus' day that were so attracted by him, the church often repels And the people that Jesus repelled, the church so often attracts. And so what would it like for us to be like for us to be a people that welcomes those who are broken and in process? I want you to know that the gospel is about healing. You know, sex can splinter us apart. You know, if we we use it wrongly, it it can lead to such brokenness. But But the gospel is about healing. The gospel is about redemption. You remember the woman he, who, who was caught in adultery and came, they brought her to Jesus and he says, I don't condemn you. 
go and sin no more. Do you see the mix there of like, hey, I'm willing to meet you where you are and I'm not gonna condemn you, but I also wanna bring you into a life of wholeness. And so Jesus Christ can heal your soma and we can be in process. And so let's, let's pray together and, and ask that God will do that in our lives. Father, we thank you so much that you were a God who welcomes sinners. Uh, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but those who are broken and really need help. And that's all of us. I think all of us could admit that in the area of sexuality, um, so many of us experience disintegration and we struggle. Lord, we thank you that we are washed. We thank you for the power of the gospel that makes us whole. I pray, God, mostly that you'd help us, your people, to, to glorify you with our bodies. These beautiful and broken bodies that you've given us, I pray, Lord, that we might live integrated lives. Lord, where we worship, God, where we live lives of disciplined desire, God, help us to live lives of freedom, freedom within the limits of our, of our givenness, of our creation. Lord, I pray that we would feel your forgiveness. Lord, that those of us in this room that are struggling with guilt and all sorts of negative emotions around this topic, God, that you would show us the hope and the forgiveness and the wholeness that's available in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.